Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and I want to thank each of you for being here. And Ambassador Ford, I know you had, uh, we're starting at a little bit uh, later time than normal to accommodate your travel, and but we thank all three of you for being here. And probably will limit uh, questions to five minutes today because of the timing and what comes uh, behind this. But again, thank you. Uh, as many of us know, this committee has spent a lot of time on the Syrian war. Five years into the war, I think we can draw a few general conclusions. Um, without leverage on the Assad regime, we have uh, little, in, little ability to influence a diplomatic solution uh, to the war. The longer this war goes on, the more complicated it gets and the more people suffer. Today, uh, we are at a meeting in the latest round of peace talks in Vienna. Uh, I talked to Dr. Hijab, the leader of the opposition in April, and understand why they withdrew from the talks. Um, as violence picked up, humanitarian aid was stopped and civilians were targeted, so they almost had no choice, and um, we supported him in that. Uh, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on what could bring the opposition back to the table at this point. Uh, and more importantly, I'd like to hear your expectations for the talks. At a time when civilians continue to be targeted, aid convoys continue to be stopped, and in some areas, elements of the opposition are acting against their own interest. I'm not sure exactly what can come out of Vienna, but we look forward to hearing your thoughts in that regard. I know Sec Secretary Kerry's repe repeatedly mentioned a plan B. Um, I've never sensed that that was realistic, it seems uh, to me very rhetorical. I don't even know now if it's, it's even aiding in, uh, in getting to an end. But I would also appreciate your thoughts on some of the longer-term ramifications of the war. Issues like the refugee crisis, a generation without education, an independent Kurdish region, and a threat to Turkey will have impact for generations to come. Finally, we spend a lot of time talking about Syria and not enough time listening to what Syrians are saying. Uh, without objection, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, I'd like to insert two documents into the record. The first is a report on chemical attacks from Syrian American, from the Syrian American Medical Society. And the second is a letter from 150 Syrians working to provide governance in Syria. Without objection, I'll enter those into the record. And with that, uh, again, I want to thank you all for being here and look forward to uh, our comments from our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardinal. Well, well Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for convening uh, this hearing on the war in Syria, next steps to mitigate the crisis, the ongoing civil war in Syria. And we have a very distinguished panel and I thank all three for, for being here and sharing their views as we try to figure out how to move forward, uh, recognizing the, the current situation. You can't rewrite history. We are where we are. How do we move forward? Suffering of the Syrian people has continued because of Bashar al-Assad and his inner circle cling to power. An internationally brokered transition government seems further away today than ever, with Assad's deputy foreign minister recently saying, this will not happen, not now, not tomorrow, not ever. Assad's contempt for his own people, enabled by Iran and Russia, is destroying his country and has created a regional crisis, including an internally displaced persons and refugees crisis of historic proportions that grows more dangerous every day. I remember that almost two months ago, Russian President Putin announced that he would start withdrawing troops from Syria. We all remember that. And we thought, May, well, looks like that uh, President Putin might be exerting his leverage over Assad uh, to get a negotiated settlement. And yet, here we are again. 
The cessation of hostilities has collapsed. Putin's supposed pressure has receded, and Russia's jets have resumed their bombing in violation of the very ceasefire that Mr. Putin helped broker. As this conflict continues to escalate, the number of combatants grow, and chances for grave mistakes rise. Just a few weeks ago, Russian and Israeli fighter jets nearly confronted each other, and reports suggest that Russian jets have fired at least twice at Israeli aircraft. And let's not forget that in late 2015, Turkey shot down a Russian jet. Misunderstandings will and can happen. And now the stakes are higher for our own special forces who have been deployed to counter ISIL. And while their mission is to train and support local forces to fight ISIL, I am concerned that they have been deployed to a complex battlefield. I hear the term deconfliction bundled about, but in, but in the fog of war, it's just a term. What, but what we should not lose sight in the fog is the human dimensions of this conflict. The Syrian people are suffering. Just look at the numbers here, Mr. Chairman. This is incredible, the crisis that has taken place. Since March 2011, 400,000 Syrians have been killed, and over 1 million have been injured. More than 4.8 million Syrians have been forced to leave the country. 6.5 million are internally displaced, making Syria the largest displacement crisis globally. This humanitarian crisis has been fueled in part by the atrocities committed by the Assad regime and violent extremist groups against Syrian civilians. Any party responsible for these crimes must be brought to justice for the abuses which defy international law. We cannot allow impunity. We must hold accountable those who are responsible. I have repeatedly raised this issue, and I'm proud the Senate passed a bill that I authored, the Syrian War Crimes Accountability Act, and I hope the House will do the same. The only way forward is to expend every effort to achieve broad political solution and to resolve this conflict through negotiations that lead to a stable Syrian government representing all of its citizens. The combatants and their outside enablers must understand that there is no possibility of a military victory for any party to this conflict. The Russians cannot bomb their way to peace. The Iranians cannot prop up Assad forever. Mr. Chairman, I understand this issue has been subject to much debate within Congress and between the Congress and the administration over the past several years. And I've been clear in my view on where I think we have opportunities. But I'm not interested today in reliving or relitigating what might have been. I am interested in developing a bipartisan approach that allows Congress and administration to work together today to seek the to bring peace and stability to Syria and to bring an end to the suffering of the Syrian people. I look forward to the, our exchange and hope that we can move forward in a, in a positive way to resolve this civil war. Thank you. Senator Cardin will now move to our witnesses. Our first witness is the Honorable Robert S. Ford, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute. Our second witness is the Honorable Nancy Lindborg, President of the United States Institute of Peace. Finally, our third witness is Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, Director and Senior Fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy, Policy at the Brookings Institute. If you would, just speak in order, it'll save time and versus me reintroducing, and uh, we look forward to your comments. I think you know you can summarize without uh, objection. Your written testimony will be entered into the record with that. Thank you, and Ambassador Ford. Mr. Chairman. Ranking Member Cardin and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for your invitation to speak to you today about Syria and what new steps the United States can take to mitigate 
the Syrian crisis. In short, there is nothing the United States can do by itself to solve the Syrian crisis now. There is no quick fix. This is in part because the Syrian war is, first and foremost, a conflict between Syrians. Yes, foreign states are involved, some quite, quite deeply. Some have sent their own forces to fight in Syria. And one regional state is organizing foreign militias to fight in Syria. But these foreign countries do not control the Syrians completely. We must remember that most of the combatants in Syria are Syrians. And the top leaders of the two opposing sides, the Syrian government and the Syrian opposition, they are Syrian. So Syrians ultimately have to negotiate an end to this war if they can. Neither side, government or opposition, has reached the breaking point, although both sides are tired. And I would add here, the Syrian economy, the Syrian currency, is plunging in value over recent weeks. Uh, both sides, however, still seek military advantage. That military advantage is often measured in just a few miles of ground. The foreign states helping them are either not willing or not able to compel their Syrian allies to stop fighting or even allow humanitarian access. And so with this willingness on the part of the Syrians to keep fighting, and in the absence of a widely agreed mechanism to monitor a new cessation of hostilities, I doubt, I strongly doubt there will be any penalties imposed on any group that violates a renewed cessation of hostilities deal. It makes little sense for foreigners, thinking long-term, it makes little sense for foreigners to sketch out designs of how a partition of Syria would work one day. No Syrian now is seeking partition. They may want partition in the future, but they are not there now, and it's up to them to decide. Likewise, it makes little sense to sketch out ideas about a future constitution for Syria when the existing state has never respected the rule of law and elements of the armed opposition do not either. Senator Corker, as you just mentioned, it seems unlikely the Syrian government will negotiate a compromise deal for a new transition government without more military pressure put upon it. We can talk about how we could do that military pressure if you wish. But let me just say that I'm firmly against introduction of more American military forces into combat situations in Syria. I spent five years of my life trying to stand up an Iraqi government so we could get our forces out of Iraq, and I don't want to see more American forces injected into Syria. I'm frankly not happy that we have American forces there now. What I would like to see is that the United States do more to help Syrian civilians. We should be pressing much harder on humanitarian access issues. If the United Nations can airdrop supplies to the Syrian government-held city of Deir in the east, which is under siege by the Islamic State, then why can it not drop air supplies to Daraya in the Damascus suburbs? We should, we should urge the United Nations and we should urge the International Committee of the Red Cross to speak more directly and to speak more publicly about who exactly is blocking aid convoys. No more passive tense. I have to say here, Jan Eglin's remarks, Jan Eglin from the United Nations, his remarks about the Daraya aid convoys 
and the Syrian government blockage, um, his remarks were a welcome departure uh, in terms of directly fingering who's responsible on the ground. Senator Corker, you asked, what would bring the opposition back to the table? Getting humanitarian aid into communities that have been besieged for years would be a huge step in that direction. Let me just say a few things about the refugees. Jordan and Turkey, countries that have done a very great deal, are blocking access. There are 50,000 people stranded on the Jordanian-Syrian border right now. Those two countries, Jordan and Turkey, need to open up their borders as international humanitarian law requires of them. But we cannot demand more without doing more ourselves. The United States should accept more Syrian refugees. The administration is at great risk of not meeting even its relatively small target of 10,000 Syrian refugees to be admitted this year. And we should be aiming much, much higher. The screening processes for Syrian refugees are very thorough. They're very labor intensive. And we need more resources to be devoted to that task. Let me conclude my remarks there, Senator. Thank you again for the invitation this morning. Thank you, Ms. Lindbergh. Before you start, uh, our friends in pink, we've been incredibly courteous uh, to you in every encounter in the hallway, and, and uh, you're really disrespecting everyone here by making noises and clapping, and we all feel that disrespect. So I would just say, please, um, act like adults, otherwise you'll leave the room, okay? Okay, uh, Ms. Lindbergh. Uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and distinguished members of the committee, I also thank you for the opportunity to testify today on the current situation in Syria and steps that we could take now to mitigate the, the impact of the crisis. And I won't repeat the grim litany of statistics. Senator Cardin, you mentioned some of them, uh, the statistics that really underscore the immensity of the human suffering that's accompanied this conflict, um, including displacement, death, and widespread crimes against humanity. We've seen use of starvation as a weapon. We've seen deliberate targeting of religious and ethnic groups and uh, deliberate targeting of medical personnel. Um, <clears throat> I have full testimony in the record. Uh, let me focus today on a few key points. Um, the first is that it is imperative to continue the life-saving humanitarian assistance that has saved countless lives since the beginning of this crisis. Um, the international humanitarian community has mobilized to provide this assistance, and with your important support, Senators, the U.S. government has led the way, um, led the way with the provision of $5.1 billion over the course of the crisis. And at the same time, inside Syria, provision of critical assistance is persistently hampered by complexities, by great danger, um, by operating while the regime continues to conduct a ruthless bombing campaign, including the deliberate targeting of civilian. We've also had the rise of ISIS, which has led to a capture of large swaths of territory where access is completely limited, and the many different armed factions, including the government, that have made crossing of multiple lines of control a daily arduous and dangerous undertaking by very heroic aid workers. Access to those in need has consistently been difficult or denied, despite repeated passage unanimously of UN Security Council resolution, resolutions 
uh, going back to, to 2014 that demand all parties allow delivery of assistance and respect the neutrality of medical assistance. So even though this is critically important, the international mobilization and continuing heroic aid efforts, uh, humanitarian action is at best a stopgap. So secondly, the most important is that we stop the bloodshed, that we prioritize a cessation of hostilities, or better yet, a full-on ceasefire. In February, we saw the cessation of hostilities that was negotiated by the International Syrian Support Group almost miraculously held for nearly seven weeks. From late February through early March, we saw the humanitarian community able to make important progress. They were able to reach 10 of 18 communities under siege, both through convoys and airdrops. Um, and compared with October to December of last year, where only 3% of the population was reached, during these seven weeks, the humanitarian community reached 52% of besieged communities. There are some estimates that violence decreased up to 90% during this period, which shows you the importance that these kinds of cessations can make to uh, suffering and war-torn communities. We know that by mid-April, this tenuous uh, agreement began to fall apart. Access is now again severely reduced. Negotiations for access are again difficult and uncertain with all sides of the conflict. Um, we also know that the regime bombing campaign never really ceased and uh, in April Syrian regime forces at, uh, rapidly escalated attacks in and around Aleppo and homes. Um, Third, we have to recognize that this is a generational crisis and sharply shift away from uh, our assistance, especially to the refugees, from a model of short term to one that emphasizes long term resilience and, and development. The 4.8 million refugees who fled Syria have overwhelmed the financial, social, economic systems of the whole region. They've threatened stability in Europe. Um, we have already seen significant progress with efforts to shift from short-term emergency assistance to addressing the long-term reality of the crisis, including uh, new host country resilience strategies, new World Bank financing mechanisms, and admirable efforts within the U.S. government to combine re relief and development. And Senator, your support on this forward movement is critical into the future to ensure longer-term, more flexible funding that enables us to address the developmental issues and the roots of this crisis in Syria and regionally. Um, fourth, we must relentlessly focus on the youth of Syria. This is the future of the country and of the region. They are growing up in conflict, ripped from their families, from communities, and any dream of, the, of a future. And we must relentlessly focus on providing the kind of jobs uh, education, ability for their voice to be heard so that they can be a part of a peaceful future, uh, keep them from being a lost generation or even worse, a dangerous generation. And finally, we have to invest now in peace and reconciliation at the community level and with investments in civil society. Um, after five years of war, we're seeing Syrian communities have splintered into a multitude of factions. Even if peace is negotiated in Vienna tomorrow, the wounds of the Syrians will take generations to heal. So we need to help now the Syrians to begin to rebuild the social cohesion that's been ripped apart by the conflict, both within the refugee communities and where possible on the ground now inside Syria. 
Peace will have to be built from the ground up with continuous and reliable support to civil society, to women, and minorities. Thank you, Senators, for Thank your you. continued focus and attention to this issue, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Dr. Wittes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, committee members. I appreciate the invitation to appear before you. And let me begin by emphasizing, as I always do, that I represent only myself before you today. The Brookings Institution does not take institutional positions on policy issues. When I last testified before this committee regarding Syria, it was April 2012. And I expressed then a concern that American reticence to act to shape the emergent civil war risked enabling an unbridled escalation of the conflict. The administration's initial read of the Syrian conflict as holding only narrow implications for American interests was a failure to learn the lessons of the post-Cold War period by recognizing the risk that Syria's civil war could spill over in ways that directly implicated American interests. Unfortunately, the realistic policy options available to the United States have narrowed considerably since 2012, and yet the Syrian civil war has direct and dire consequences today, not just for regional order, but for international security. This reality, combined with the tremendous human suffering this war generates every day, drives two clear imperatives for U.S. policy, to intensify efforts to contain the destabilizing spillover and to seek an end to the conflict as soon as possible. But we must be realistic about what steps will and will not end the Syrian conflict. I believe that absent a change in the balance of power on the ground, diplomacy alone is unlikely to end the war. But I certainly agree with diplomatic efforts to advance a countrywide cessation of hostilities and advance a vision for a political settlement. A full-scale ceasefire could create more space for political bargaining and, in the meantime, reduce human suffering. Right now, however, the Assad government and its patrons in Tehran and Moscow have no interest in a sustained ceasefire because the battleground dynamics continue to shift in their favor. They've used the partial ceasefires of the past weeks to consolidate territorial gains from opposition forces and to further weaken those forces through continued air attacks. Without agreement amongst the various governments around the table in Vienna as to which fighting groups constitute terrorists, a ceasefire will inevitably disadvantage opposition factions as the Assad regime targets them in the name of counterterrorism. This will likewise advantage the most extreme among the rebel factions, as well as jihadi groups like ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra. In the ongoing diplomacy over how the conflict ends and what political settlement results, there are two issues on which the parties involved in the Vienna talks demonstrate sharp disagreement and about which the United States needs to advance clear views. The first is a disagreement over the primacy of preserving the central Syrian government, even if it remains headed by Bashar al-Assad. It's understandable to desire uh, the preservation of Syrian government institutions, to want a central government to work with on counterterrorism and post-war reconstruction. But there's an embedded assumption here that any Syrian government based in Damascus will exercise meaningful control over most or all of Syria's territory when the war ends. I think that assumption is faulty. The degree of displacement, the extent of destruction, the hardening of sectarian and ethnic divisions mean that local communities will end up being the primary providers of order. And it's local order, more than a central government, that will enable communities to resist ISIS infiltration. 
So countries concerned with effective governance in Syria as a bulwark against extremism need to recognize and value the importance of local governance. The second major issue under contention is the role that Iran will play in a post-conflict Syria. Iran's efforts to expand its influence in Syria and the region as a whole are a concern that unites all of America's partners in the region and a major concern for Washington as well. Any political settlement that institutionalizes that role will increase Iran's ability to threaten American allies and American interests. A second major priority for American policy is stepped up efforts to mitigate the destabilizing consequences of the war and while we work on a diplomatic solution to prepare for the long-term wide-scale effort needed for post-conflict stabilization and reconstruction. Let me make just one point on this issue. I think too often in discussing Syria, we posit a choice between working with the central government and working with unsavory non-state actors. And there's an obvious additional option which is already in play that deserves greater emphasis. That's empowering and engaging local municipalities, local business sectors, local civil society, other actors who exist in territory not under either extremist or regime control and who have an obvious stake in the success of their communities. These are the ones who will manage differences, who will mitigate the reemergence of conflict, who will uh, deal with the consequences of transitional justice, who will resist terrorist infiltration. USAID and its implementing partners, I think, have been very creative in developing programs to engage these local communities, and this work deserves robust support from Congress. One final note on the refugee crisis. In addition to associating myself with the comments of my colleagues, I wanted to let you know that the Brookings Institution in the middle of next month will convene a high-level gathering of regional, European, and American leaders to develop new responses, more robust forms of cooperation to meet this global challenge, and I look forward to reporting to you on our findings. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because of the, the topic and our outstanding witnesses, we have a full house, and I know we, we have other things that are going to be starting a little bit later, so I'm going to ask Bertie to put five minutes on the clock instead of seven. And I would just ask the witnesses if you can get your point across concisely. I know everyone will appreciate it. But again, thank you for being here and for your outstanding service to our country. I'm going to uh, reserve my time. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, I thank the witnesses. And uh, th let me get to what you, you, we all, all three have said, basically, we have to find a negotiated way uh, for Syria to move forward as a unified country with leaders that will respect all the communities, have the confidence of all the communities, that this is a civil war being waged by Syrians. And the only way to resolve it is for the Syrians to have confidence uh, that a process moving forward can bring their country together. So what are the lessons learned from the ceasefire that didn't hold? Uh, when Russia said they were going to leave, I don't think many of us believed that they would be leaving. Uh, and clearly they didn't. Uh, we're not sure what Russia's intents are, although we know that they want to be relevant in the Middle East and they see Syria as a country where they can exercise continuing influence. Iran is clearly involved here, and their motivations are much less understood from the point of view of a way that we can work with them and find a common ground to move forward in, in Syria. So what are the lessons that we've learned from uh, the, the failed ceasefire that can help us in planning a, a strategy for peace talks 
that can really lead to a ceasefire and, as you point out, the urgency of delivering humanitarian assistance, which will also help in reconciliation in the country. So what would you suggest moving forward we should do differently than we did in the last efforts in Vienna? Uh, Senator, I would suggest one big lesson learned and then a couple of suggestions. The big lesson learned is that Russia either cannot or will not deliver major Syrian concessions even on something as simple as humanitarian aid access. Uh, going forward, what I'm looking for out of the discussions in Vienna today is whether or not there is, number one, an agreement among all of the people at that table in Vienna about a monitoring mechanism. Otherwise, there's a lot of finger pointing about who violated what cessation of hostilities uh, detail. And the second I'm looking for is an agreement among the countries at that table that whoever is determined to have violated the cessation of hostilities, there will be penalties for doing that. There were no penalties imposed at all. What kind of penalties? Sir? It could be anything from uh, uh, allied states who are pumping in weapons to say we're, gonna, we're not going to, we will stop if you, if you continue to violate uh, the ceasefire. Um, it could be diplomatic pressure in terms of um, booting out an embassy um, or demanding uh, publicly uh, that that behavior must stop and if not there will be consequences. I imagine it would be graded over time if the violations continue. Uh, the group on the ground who has foreign friends um, would come under greater and greater pressure. So but there are no penalties at all now, none. And so those would be the, the lessons I would take. Iran, you wanna comment as to whether Iran it, it needs to be part of these discussions and how do we handle that participation by Iran in these peace talks when at least to many of us we think their major interest is to keep conflict brewing. Thank you. Well, let me, let me try to address that. I think that um, Iran, as I said, is the one issue that unites the United States and all of its partners around the table in Vienna. There are other issues on which they disagree. Uh, so I think that we need to keep that coalition strong. Iran's primary objective, in my view, uh, is not necessarily to keep the war going, but to keep the Assad regime in power, to keep this Alawi well, that, regime that keeps the war going. in power. Yes, I agree. Uh, and they need, but they would, I think, um, settle for, if forced, even a rump Assad regime that did not maintain control over uh, all of Syria because they need it as a conduit to Hezbollah and as strategic depth. Uh, my for conversations Hezbollah. with a lot of the players is that that will not bring peace to Syria. <laughs> I, I would certainly agree, and it might not bring peace anywhere else in the region either. Senator, I would just add that what does what also unites the parties at the table is the fact that um, the continued chaos and conflict continues to benefit some of the armed extremist groups uh, who are no 
positive benefit to any of the actors. So there's a united desire to take action in such a way that those groups are curtailed, number one. And number two is um, the longer this conflict rages on, the longer there is um, a shared uh, terrible impact from the outflow of no refugees question. and the destruction of the, of the economies and the infrastructure really regionally. So there, there is a shared interest in coming to some conclusion um, There's no question there's shared interest. The question is how do you overcome the individual issues that have blown up the, the process in the past? And I, I, we all recognize it's, it's challenging, and I think you've offered, uh, particularly having some degree of accountability, Mr. Master, I thought it was a good suggestion. Thank you. Senator Perdue. Thank you. I have two uh, brief questions. Uh, Dr. Wittes, uh, you had mentioned earlier, um, and I want to come back to this. Um, um, Merkel has just or asked uh, that safe zones be uh, discussed again uh, with a potential of no-fly zone support and so forth. Uh, that didn't seem to be very viable uh, earlier when uh, they were discussed. What, uh, what would make that more workable today? I, I visited with uh, refugees personally in Jordan, uh, also in uh, the, the Nizip uh, camp in, near Gaziantep in Turkey, and also I've seen them in the, in the refugee pipeline up in Serbia. Uh, in my opinion, these people do not want to leave their country. They want to stay there, but obviously the condition there is so bad they, they've been forced to. Uh, I have one question about that in terms of quickly, if you can respond to, is it now possible, given the failure of this, this uh, first uh, attempt at uh, cessation of hostilities, is it now not an opportunity to go back and revisit safe zone opportunity? If we see a cessation of hostilities as not only a way to reduce human suffering, but also a way to work toward the end of conflict, then it's clearly preferable uh, as a first step than safe zones. Uh, and I think that they're, they're taking another go at it. I don't think they've given up yet. Uh, but if, in fact, those parties in Vienna cannot agree to a meaningful ceasefire, then I think pressure for safe zones will grow. And we've seen that what the Europeans have done, trying to restrict the flow through Turkey, is only having limited impact. We see S Syrians now going into North Africa to try and cross the Mediterranean and get into Europe that way. So they, they are searching for a solution to this problem. Second question um, on Russia. You mentioned Russia earlier. Uh, it sure seems to me that they have a long-term interest in Syria, not Bashar al-Assad. Uh, with what they've done in the air base at Latakia and in the naval base at Tortuse, they look like they're there permanently. Uh, this fits in very well with their strategy in Crimea as well. So what is the long-term uh, role that they play? They certainly have not come to the realization and agreement that Bashar al-Assad has to go. Um, how do they play into where we go from here, honestly? You know, I, I think the administration has spent the last four years trying to persuade the Russians to shift their position in Syria without success. And uh, that leads me to a similar conclusion to the one that, that Ambassador Ford gave in his testimony, which is that they are either unable or unwilling. And I'm honestly not sure it could be a bit of both, uh, because the Syrians also have very robust Iranian backing that is directed at saving Bashar al-Assad. Now, for, for the Russians, it's about a place at the table. It's about having a state uh, rather than state collapse, because they believe that's what will enable Sunni extremism to migrate in their direction, uh, as well as about preserving those assets that you described. So 
in theory, it's possible to uh, arrive at a solution that meets their needs. Uh, I just don't see a lot of willingness on their part to move there in practice. Ambassador, you mentioned several things you would, you would have us do in terms of dealing with refugees. Uh, what would you have us do politically to, to encourage a ceasefire and, and really to move toward the removal of Bashar al-Assad, which is our position right now? And are we, are we ever going to be willing to give up on that? I hope we won't. But uh, what is our position now relative to the, the cessation of uh, or the, the failure of the cessation of hostilities? What would be your recommendation right now in terms of our uh, position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a renewed round of uh, negotiations relative to a ceasefire, or you've mentioned uh, the military side as well, but would you respond to that? Um, very briefly, Senator. Um, with respect to a cessation of hostilities, obviously the United States wants it. Um, there are modalities I mentioned about accountability and, and um, penalizing people who are determined responsible for violations. The broader goal of solving the Syrian crisis, the American strategy has always been to get to a negotiated solution between Syrians. I, I think that makes sense, but we've never had tactics to achieve that strategy. And it's very clear to me uh, that unless there's a great deal more military pressure on Bashar al-Assad, he will not make substantial compromises. And where would that pressure come from? In your well, the pressure needs to come from armed opposition groups on the ground. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Senator, in July of 2015, President Assad, in a national speech in Syria, said our forces are tired. We're having to withdraw from towns and cities that we don't want to withdraw from, but we have to because we don't have enough soldiers. People are not signing up for the army. They're running away from national service. They need to stay. Uh, his entire demeanor was very downbeat. I'm that sorry, was last July. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, you know, you've got the Curtis YPG and the SOC have terrible relationships. I mean, where is this opposition going to really come from? As I was saying, Senator, last July, Assad himself was admitting that his forces were losing on the battlefield. That was a year ago, and they're still- Well, that was nine months ago before the Russians intervened. After the Russian intervention, then to me, the logical thing, we were talking a moment ago about Iran, which has ground forces in Syria, it, it, in order to get them to negotiate, they will have to feel more pain. And so, but I don't want American forces to do that. I think there are fighters on the ground that can do that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, thank you all for your testimony, and uh, I agree that uh, 1,800 refugees being taken in uh, by the United States this year from Syria is un unacceptably low. We have a far greater responsibility uh, to deal with the human suffering that has been created in that region. We are part of the creation of the problem. We have to be part of the relief valve to help these families. And so we thank you for that 1,800 is just too low. So what I'd like to do is just uh, follow up on what Senator Perdue was talking about, and that is looking at this interaction between Russia uh, and the United States, um, especially in light of these reports where Al-Qaeda now is intending to move in more deeply into um, Syria, to partner with al-Nusra, and to declare a caliphate. Uh, no small moment uh, in 
Syrian history, if that does happen, uh, creating a tension not only against Assad, but simultaneously against ISIS, uh, really complicating our problems. So if I could come back to you again, uh, Ambassador Ford, and thank you for your service. Could we go to, um, again, this issue of Russia and the United States agreeing uh, on a Chapter 7 enforcement action uh, so that we can create the space for humanitarian aid uh, to go in? We could create some space where additional weaponry is not being introduced into that region and that the United States and Russia can agree at the UN and in Geneva uh, that that will be a pathway forward. What would it take for that kind of an agreement to be reached? During my time in government, Senator Markey, the Russians were extremely averse to any kind of Chapter 7 action against the Syrian government. I would add that Iran is now sending in fighters directly as well as weaponry. They're even organizing Shia to come from places like Iraq and Afghanistan to fight in Syria. And so it would have to be Chapter 7 not only against Syrian government, but potentially against Iran. And I, I can imagine that that is going to be uh, not easy for people in Moscow to swallow. So in your opinion, then, that whole process just cannot come to anything because the Russians would be unwilling at any time to stand up and say that the Iranians as well must be bound by any restrictions that are placed on the transfer of humanitarian aid uh, into these troubled areas and the maintenance of a ceasefire so that, um, so that these people are not caught in the crossfire? Senator, I'm not aware of any American efforts in the past year to take humanitarian assistance issues to the United Nations Security Council and try to get an action under Chapter 7. And I think it would be useful to pin the Russians on that, frankly. Um, I think it would be very useful. I don't think we've tried it, but I just caution you that I don't think the Russians are likely to cave very easily. Even on humanitarian aid? Even on humanitarian assistance. Yes. Ms. Lindbergh. Senator, if I could just comment on that. Beginning in February 2014, there was the first of what have what has been, I think, about now four different resolutions passed on this issue, all but the Chapter 7 provision. They've all had no teeth in them whatsoever. It's been a hard-fought but unanimous vote. You would not get it passed based on that experience if you tried to put any teeth into it. I think they walked it as far and as hard as they could and uh, got repeated blocks. What we're seeing now is a p possible alternative in the Vienna process that hopefully will take us further than what we've been able to do in the Security Council? Well, I think that if the Iranians seem to feel that they're exempt from this process and they are a continuing and increasing problem in Syria, then unless the United States raises uh, this issue in a formal way, uh, that puts Russia on the spot, then I'm just afraid we're going to see, again, a repetition uh, syndrome that escalates inside of Syria. So, Ambassador Ford, coming back to you again, would you recommend that the United States bring this in a much more focused way to um, 
to uh, the Russians uh, as an issue that we force them to vote upon? Senator, I would, and I say that with um, great respect to former colleagues, because the amount of work that goes into taking an issue to the Security Council um, and pushing on a, a resolution with Chapter 7 sanctions, the amount of work is enormous. But I do think it is useful to force the Russians to publicly, publicly either defend the Assad government's actions blocking humanitarian access, um, or to accept that there should be some Chapter 7 measure against the Syrian government and against any other group. So if it applied to Assad and the opposition groups, could Russia support it? I don't think they would, Senator. Okay, we have to, pro we have to press that question on them. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, did you need to go somewhere? Go ahead. I'm going to let Senator Johnson. You kind of came in enough. first, but but I'll let you guys arm wrestle. And no, I'll let, I'm not going to arm wrestle. Quickly. Thank you. <laughs> I think he's got to be somewhere. I don't have to be somewhere for a few more minutes, so go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. Um, how long have we been talking about a negotiated settlement, Ambassador Ford? Since 2011. Isn't it true that diplomacy follows facts on the ground? Sometimes it can get out in front of facts on the ground, but facts on the ground will definitely influence diplomacy. So the facts on the ground are Iran is gaining strength, correct? We don't know exactly how many billions have been interjected into their economy and military, but they're gaining strength, correct? I would put it this way, Senator. There are more Iranians and Iranian-backed militias in Syria now than a year ago or two years ago. So Iran is gaining strength in Syria. Uh, Russia has obviously ended the, the war, and certainly the opposition is weakening, correct? Uh, it's a stalemate for the, for the most part, Senator. The opposition certainly isn't gaining strength. Uh, yes and no, but it's, it's basically a stalemate, Senator. So how, does, how, how do you create any kind of pressure on either the Assad regime or Iran or Russia to cede any or make any concessions in a negotiate, no negotiation whatsoever? Uh, as, I, as I said before, Assad himself was admitting defeats last right. July. So our, our, that's our, our, what brought the Russians in. So my question then would be, is there no way to facilitate um, additional supplies to the armed opposition to get us back to where we were last July? Aren't we deluding ourselves that we can achieve some kind of negotiated settlement and some kind of ceasefire here until Russia and Assad and Iran have achieved their, their, their aims? I mean, why, 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 would, why would they stop? I think the Iranians in particular are a bit sensitive about their casualties. They, keep it, they try to keep their number of their direct forces down. That's why they're sending in Afghans and Iraqis. Um, but they've taken a lot of losses among their officers in Syria, which is interesting. Um, and I don't think the Russians are particularly attached to Assad. Um, the question is, are they willing to use any leverage to get a replacement, and I have not seen that willingness yet. You know, I, I remember in testimony before this committee that uh, the administration was necessarily making the point that, boy, is Russia going to re—are they going to uh, be—they're going to re—what's uh, the, what's the right word—they're going to regret. They're going to regret going to Syria. Uh, they're they're going to enter a quagmire here. This is going to be terrible for Russia. Has that turned out that way? Do you think they're regretting their—, their uh, involvement right now? No, I don't think they regret it, but they haven't won either. Dr. Woody, do so you have anything to add to this? I, 
I guess I would just say that the Russians had modest goals for their intervention, uh, which was resetting the balance in Assad's favor. They achieved those goals. If they can sustain that at modest cost, I think they'll be happy. So Ambassador Ford is suggesting that we find ways to increase the cost, and I think that's an appropriate avenue. So again, short of something pretty dramatic changing, to change that equation, to change that balance of power, I mean, this thing just continues to really work in the favor of Assad and Russia and Iran. If I may make one more point, you know, I think there have been some suggestions made recently in the commentary that perhaps the United States should not be so stuck on the idea of Assad's departure uh, as part of a peace settlement, uh, and that letting go of that demand might allow some kind of U.S.-Russian condominium. Uh, I actually think that rests on some faulty assumptions. First, as we've seen, it's not clear the Russians have the will or ability to exercise leverage over Iran, over uh, Assad, but more than that, if you look at other cases, uh, of civil wars settled with the help of outside powers. You can get that international agreement, but you still have to impose it on the parties on the ground. Uh, and in the Bosnian case, for example, uh, doing that required a set of Croat military victories, and then it required a NATO air campaign. So I, I don't think we can look to diplomacy alone to settle this. Okay, thank you. Thank, thanks, Senator Rubio and Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker um, and Ranking Member Cardin for convening this important hearing and to all three of you for your um, lengthy and uh, important uh, public service and for your testimony here today. Um, the grinding, um, brutal nature of the humanitarian crisis in Syria is something that has, I know, uh, occupied uh, you and many on this committee for years and is one of our greatest unaddressed, unresolved tragedies of the modern era. So let me try to ask briefly three different questions across three different topics and then leave you in turn to answer them. Um, first, about Iran's role uh, and the distinctions between Iran's role and Russia's role and their intentions. Um, you've all, at different points, talked about we need to find ways to increase the cost on the ground. There are slight differences in priority between Russia and Iran, but Iran has doubled down, has sent in forces, has sent in militias, has, and that is really the only thing that has shifted uh, the balance on the ground and the momentum in Assad's favor and has significantly complicated the path forward towards any kind of lasting cessation and restoration of humanitarian aid. Why not now move to plan B to significantly increasing our train and equip mission and investing in um, finding forces on the ground that will oppose Assad in a meaningful and sustained way? I can imagine the critiques of that, but I'd be interested in hearing yours rather than mine. And then second, if I might, um, there's an upcoming conference, um, Ms. Lindborg, in Istanbul. I strongly agree with your view that we need to recalibrate humanitarian assistance from being emergency and temporary to recognizing that a whole generation of Syrians will likely grow up in the midst of conflict and outside their native country. Uh, and we have to begin investing in human development in order to have any hope for a next generation of Syrians capable of carrying out a peace uh, in that country once restored. Uh, Kenya is uh, currently making, I think, uh, really unfortunate and threatening uh, um, gestures about uh, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Somali refugees in northeastern Kenya. The reality is they've lived there more than 20 years. And so we have to accept that many who are currently refugees may well be refugees for decades. And 
How do you expect the model of development to change at the Istanbul Conference? And what, frankly, could we in the Senate do to provide support, whether for some new strategy on the ground in Syria that, is, that might change um, the, the balance on the battlefield? And how do you imagine that we could peel Iran and Russia apart in their views? And then how do you imagine we might be more effective in supporting a change in the humanitarian delivery um, and the, the long-term prioritization of humanitarian assistance? I'd be interested in your response to those questions, any of the panel. Uh, thank you. Let me kick it off with uh, Iran and Russia. First, I would say that what shifted the dynamic on the battlefield is the Russian intervention, not primarily these uh, Iranian militias and IRGC commanders. Um, the, the militia presence, I think, is an indication that Iran is sensitive to the costs of this intervention, just as Russia's announcement of its withdrawal, although it didn't in fact withdraw much, is evidence of its sensitivity to cost. Hezbollah, for its part, has lost 1,000 people fighting in Syria, and it has to answer to its uh, Lebanese constituency for that. So none of these parties are insensitive to the price they pay for supporting Assad, and some of them are more cost-sensitive than others. So if you want to peel them apart, and you can increase the costs, some of them will start to step away, probably the Russians first, uh, as we've been discussing. Now, on the train and equip question, um, the first thing I would say is that even in the best case scenario, that's a very long-term strategy. That's a multi-year strategy. Uh, and the administration's early efforts here were too little and some would argue too late as well to make much impact. So if we're going to kick that off again, we should expect that to operate over three to five year time rate frame minimum. Uh, and then, of course, the other barrier so far has been the American priority on uh, fighting ISIS in Syria. And so the administration would have to be willing to shift its priority set. It would be much more in line with our regional partners uh, in, who are dealing with the Syrian conflict. They would like to see us turn our attention to Assad first and ISIS later. Uh, but I, I think that that's something the American people uh, might not feel the same way about. We've seen in public opinion uh, a strong shift uh, that creates a, a, a better environment for the United States to invest in fighting ISIS because of the fear of ISIS. Uh, but I'm not sure that there's sufficient consensus here that the broader Syrian conflict or uh, removing Bashar al-Assad is something that we want to invest in. I'm almost out of time. Ms. Lindborg, if you could just answer the humanitarian question, please. Thank you, Senator Coons. Um, you know, despite the urgency of the situation for 2016, we're still only seeing 23% of the uh, humanitarian appeal being funded globally, 23% of $4.5 billion. So at a time where people urgently need assistance and we have refugees overwhelming country systems, it is severely underfunded. The World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul next week, which is the first of its kind, is really seeking to look at a global system that is crushingly overburdened, driven by Syria, but also by protracted crises like Kenya that have persisted for decades. We're seeing 80% of global humanitarian funding now going to conflict-affected crises. A decade ago, it was 80% to natural disasters. So we need to rethink how we provide both development and relief assistance so that we tackle that, these kinds of roots of conflict earlier before we're relying on gigantic needs for peacekeeping and humanitarian assistance. 
we need to have uh, both more donors who are in the system. There's a big effort to increase both effectiveness and efficiency, but we really need to do a different kind of uh, uh, approach that blends the, the emergency response with the longer-term support, support for youth, for education, for livelihoods, for psychosocial impacts, and for the kind of rebuilding of, of social cohesion at the community level when it has been torn apart by these conflicts, and it will lead to repeated cycles of conflict if we don't invest as much in that. So this is an opportunity for a gigantic reset. Uh, I think it will probably be the opening of a door instead of the end of a conversation. It will require ultimately support from you senators to enable the U.S. to be a leader in rethinking the kind of flexibility that we need to flexibly work at the community level in very complex environments. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. I really appreciate Senator that. Rubio. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Ford, it's, it, because you've heard this today and some of the questions that kind of allude to the fact that there's no one to work with, isn't it true that until the Russians began airstrikes in September, non-ISIS, non-jihadist Arab local forces were making significant military gains and that in fact that was the reason why Russia began to conduct airstrikes last September. Precisely, that's what Bashar al-Assad admitted in his speech to the Syrian nation at the end of July 2015. And in fact, the Russian airstrikes have been largely targeted at the non-ISIS fighters for much of the conflict because Assad is trying to create a binary choice for the world between the Islamists and himself. I think that's accurate. And as long as Assad is in power, will there ever be peace in Syria? For, for, I give you as an example, I watched recently a program on Frontline called The Children of Syria. It followed some children for three years. And one of the children, very young child, eight or nine years old, said into the camera, if I ever get my hands on Bashar al-Assad, I forgot the exact term, I'm gonna torture him, kill him, strangle him. The point being, you now literally have millions of people who have seen loved ones killed, cities entirely wiped out. The bottom line is, as long as Bashar al-Assad is in power, there will be some other group that will rise up and resist his rule. Is that not, as long as Assad is there, there's not going to be peace in Syria. I think that's accurate, Senator. I would just say it's not only Assad, it's an entire security apparatus that has terrorized Syrians for decades. Well, my question to you and to Dr. Wittes is, is it time to start thinking about the reality that perhaps Syria, as we've known it, its existing borders as a unitary nation, that the fact is it may never, it may never again be possible to bring all of these communities to share a common nation given what has transpired over the last few years. I'm, I'm sure that's not the ideal outcome, but that, is that where we're headed? Yeah, uh, Senator, it may, be, it may be that in the end, Syrians decide that partition is better. It may be, I don't know. No Syrian now is calling for it, and I don't think it can be imposed, a partition can be imposed. It's different that way from Bosnia, say, and the Balkan experience. Um, I think in the meantime, what needs to be done um, is to try to help Syrians build bridges across very bitter divides. And I would like to see much more effort um, complementing whatever the United States is doing through formal diplomatic efforts. I'd like to see more effort on informal efforts off-line uh, meetings between Syrians, civil well, society organizations, because that is the only way to lay a foundation to get past 
the bitter fighting we have. And I don't know the answer to this question is why I ask. Is there, a, is there enough of a Syrian identity, separate from sectarianism, separate from tribalism, is there enough of a Syrian identity to unify a nation around? If, if I could just chime in, I th there's certainly a long history of communities living and working with one another. And we see in both Syria and Iraq that tensions have been exacerbated and inflamed because of the respective conflicts. But yet when, it, and my institution, U.S. Institute of Peace, has experience of, of helping to broker negotiations between Sunnis and Shias, for example, in Tikrit, that enabled hundreds of thousands of people to return. You, you can build peace from the ground up, uh, but it has to be within a framework for a larger pathway forward. Let me perhaps make a, a broader point, which is, I don't think the problem here is about borders. I think the problem is about politics. Um, this is how people settle their differences peacefully. If they can't settle their differences peacefully, they're going to do it violently. And when politics doesn't work, when your government betrays you and turns its guns on you, then you revert to other ways of telling friend from foe, and you look for other people with guns who can protect you. That's what's going on. Well, That's not an irreversible process. And I would say, too, that I don't see any place you can draw lines that will automatically end the fighting, because people are not fighting over square inches of land. Well, then let me ask this. This is relevant to the last point I wanted to raise before I run out of time. We're about to go through a pretty significant conundrum between Turkey and the Kurds up north and the Manbij pocket that there's going to be an effort to close. The Kurds say, and they're important in this effort and they're a NATO ally, that the YPG elements in the north of the country that are trying to unify the cantons are basically the PKK, their mortal enemy, and that once they unify the cantons, the next step is to come across the border. On the other hand, others like the United States would argue that the YPG and others are the only group up north that can be worked with uh, that have proven effective. Uh, what is, is it, in fact the, is it in fact the goal of the YPG to not just engage in this closing of the Manbij pocket, but to establish across the northern part of Syria, unify the cantons from Afrin all the way to the east, and create their own state? Is that not what they're calling for now, is the creation of their own state? Uh, Senator, they haven't publicly said they want to create a state, but they've already announced an autonomous zone. Um, their model is something like what the Iraqi Kurds have in northern Iraq. They've already the Iraqi Kurds it. want their own state now, so oh, well, <laughs> that'd be the next step, I guess. So it might, I might very well be. Um, absolutely, they want to take that pocket and create a contiguous region. There is no question about that, and that's why the Turks have reacted badly. May I just say one thing? Um, the YPG, that militia that uh, the United States has been supporting, is absolutely affiliated with the PKK. Uh, second, there are other groups that are operating up there um, that have been fighting the Islamic State, but also fighting the Bashar al-Assad regime. They have never gotten the kind of support that the YPG has received. They have never gotten the kind of close combat air support that that Kurdish militia has received. Ask the administration why that is. Um, I do not believe that the YPG is an irreplaceable element of an American strategy against the Islamic State. Senator Shaheen. Thank you. Thank you all very much for being here today. Um, Ambassador Ford, I certainly agree with you that I would like to see more focus on humanitarian aid, that we should do a much better job. I think all three of you have said that. 
Um, I think the United States should do much more to accept Syrian refugees, and I think it's disappointing that we have an election cycle that seems to be um, inhibiting that in the way that it is. Um, but one of the things I also heard, I think all three of you agree on, is that until we remove Assad, um, that the fighting is going to continue. And that the only way we're going to get Assad to consider negotiations and all of the parties to consider that is by putting greater military pressure on him. And what I don't understand, Ambassador Ford, is how we're going to be able to do that if the train and equip mission hasn't worked, um, the opposition groups haven't been successful. Um, I mean, I, I'm not in favor of putting U.S. troops on the ground there, but how, how do we accomplish that end of putting greater military pressure on Assad if we're not willing to do anything that's actually going to do that? So, I, I mean, I, I throw that out to all three of you. How does that happen? It, frankly, Senator, it doesn't happen unless the United States working with regional partners uh, provides greater material assistance to the armed opposition. I wouldn't do that without making it part of a broader strategy, a political strategy, but it has to be one element, an important element of that broader political strategy. Otherwise, frankly, I see no positive outcome from a Geneva peace process, even if it does restart. Uh, but let me explore that just a little bit further because it seems to me that we are now w more willing to provide arms and equipment to opposition fighters, but it doesn't seem to be having the kind of positive impact that we would like. Does anybody? So I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure how that gets us where we want to go. And maybe somebody else would like to respond well, to that. Well, I'll make one more note about the nature of the support that's been provided to uh, those fighting Assad in Syria. Um, the U.S. support, of course, is being provided to groups that are fighting ISIS. And that's because the U.S. priority is the defeat of ISIS. Uh, our partners in the region um, are divided. Some of them have a priority of defeating ISIS. Some of them have a priority of defeating Assad. Now, I think we all agree that both those things are important. It's a question of which is primary. But in the absence of um, sufficient coherence within our friends and partners uh, on that set of priorities, the assistance is not being directed in a unified manner, and it's not being directed against a political strategy. Uh, and you see instead that different regional actors are backing their favorite factions in a way that's inefficient and ultimately ineffective on the battlefield. Thank you, that's helpful. Let me, because my time is short, I want to also explore the comments about supporting local um, civil society groups and local communities because I certainly agree that that um, makes a lot of sense as an alternative to um, a central government that can be stable. But I think one of the challenges has been how to do that in a way that is consistent, that actually gets um, support to those communities when they're in the middle of a civil war. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little more, um, Ms. Lindborg, and, and then perhaps Dr. Wittes as well. 
Sure, thank you. There has been actually considerable effort uh, by the U.S. government um, and a number of USAID partners to provide support to local provincial councils, um, to local civilian uh, civil society groups, as well as to a really courageous group of first responders called the White Helmet. There is underneath what we see and what we hear about, there is still a remarkable amount of activity and, and action and leadership on the ground by Syrians. And it is critically important to support that, to help it expand. That will be the foundation of a future Syria. Okay, well, excuse me for interrupting, but so what are we suggesting what are you suggesting that would be more effective than what we're doing? Increasing the amount of assistance that's going to those groups? Um, Supporting its continuation, um, e expanding it when possible, because it, it, it varies depending on what, uh, what, who's, who's controlling territory at a given time. Um, but we, this will be part of a longer-term strategy that extends into a future for Syria. Well, that's what I was going to ask, um, and I, I'm out of time, I know that, but how long into the future? Because what you're talking about is a decades-long strategy, is it not? It's, it's both immediate because they, these uh, local structures are providing some stability in certain parts of Syria for their community members, and they will provide uh, the nucleus for a, a future of Syria into the future, and however long that becomes necessary. This is a very important part of the strategy, though, because Syrians, and it's been alluded to by all three of us, there has to be the ability of Syrians beyond the armed groups to be a party to negotiations, to local conversations, and um, opportunities to, to envision a peace. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Ford, um, I wanted you to maybe touch a little bit more deeply on your skepticism about the effectiveness of U.S. combat troop deployments um, into Syria. You know, our, our deployment in the region certainly isn't as deep as it was during the Iraq War, but it's frankly broader and wider than ever before. We now have uh, troops in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen. Of course, the history of our engagement in places doesn't tell you that thin deployments get thinner. <laughs> it tells you that they get thicker over time. So you, you, you had some strong words in your opening statement about you know, you, your, your unwillingness to endorse broader deployments, but your discomfort with the existing deployments. Can you just talk a little bit uh, about uh, your fears in this respect? Three comments. Number one, we have gained our side, our allies in Syria and in Iraq, have gained a lot of ground against the Islamic State. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But uh, number two, uh, as we saw in Iraq, Senator, what do you do on the day after? And I was just speaking a little while ago with Senator Rubio about the Kurdish militia that we have relied upon. That Kurdish militia has been accused of war crimes by groups like Amnesty International. Um, in some cases, Syrian refugees flee it and don't go towards 
the Kurdish areas. They run away from them. They go into Islamic State territory, um, which tells me that governance is an issue. The Kurds can't provide that governance. Who's going to provide it? It can't be American special ops. Um, so that there's a lot more to this than just sending in special forces. And number three, there is a price for sending in American forces, which is it does play right into the recruitment videos of the caliph and uh, so-called caliph and others who say this is a jihad against the hated Americans. It's harder for them to say that when they're only fighting Syrian Muslims, whether they be Kurds or Arabs. Um, uh, Dr. Woodis, I, I wanted to sort of give you a chance to respond in part to what Senator Shaheen was raising, and maybe in, in this context. Um, so that sounds wonderful, a, a, a future Syria in which local communities are empowered to work for themselves and protect themselves. The recent history of the Middle East wouldn't suggest that that's a paradigm that can last. What we have mostly is either strongmen or chaos. Um, and even a place like Lebanon, which certainly has more local community empowerment than others, you know, it, 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 it's still required uh, there to have a very complicated Rube Goldberg scheme of national governance that provides cover to, underneath. So, um, so, so answer Senator Sheen's question about, uh, about why this matters, empowering local communities, but then also address my skepticism that that's a sustainable solution in a region that doesn't have a lot of uh, evidence that there's a middle ground between strong central governance or chaos. Uh, thank you, Senator. I, I think that's a fantastically important question, not only for Syria, but for the region as a whole. And it's an important question because that is precisely what the Arab world is struggling with right now, the collapse of an unsustainable political model of authoritarianism. These strong central governments failed their people, uh, and everybody knows it. And the result is that there is intense skepticism among Arab citizens, particularly young Arabs, not just about central governments or strongmen, but about political parties, about politics in general, about religious institutions or other people who stand up and claim to tell them what to do and what to believe. And in an environment where citizens have that much frustration and that much skepticism, um, what they really want is their own voice and their own choice. And I think that means local empowerment. I, you see that in other countries around the region. Morocco, for example, has committed to a path of decentralization that's pushing budgets and decision-making down to the local level. So I think that governments are already recognizing. Let me sneak in one last question. Are, but are you going to get to that place by the United States picking and choosing what local communities get funding and support and what don't? Okay, thank you. And, and that does give me a, an opportunity to link up to Senator Shaheen's very good question. I think that there are some specific things that the United States can do, although most of this has to be done in and by the region. Uh, in the Syrian context, I would point to a couple of things. One is that right now, the, the support that is being provided to uh, these local councils in northern Syria is being provided across the Turkish border. And as you know, we're working very hard to close that border uh, to prevent jihadis from going back and forth. So the United States needs to work with the Turkish government to ensure that the civilian aid and the civilian workers, the Syrians, 
who are getting trained and going back in to work with their own communities can get back and forth across that border. That's one very specific thing the United States can do. A second thing I don't think we're doing much of right now, and I think we could do a lot more of, is working with refugee populations who are outside of Syria, in some cases quite far away, to help them build the skills and platforms for dialogue, for conflict resolution, so that they can plug into this stuff when and if they're able to go back. There's no reason not to start working on that now, and no one else is doing it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Having used none of my time, I just want to ask one brief question. I, Ambassador Ford, I, you know, this conflict has evolved, and we had a tremendous opportunity, I felt, in September of 2013 when the red line was crossed. Um, we had a 10-hour operation planned off of the Mediterranean, no boots on the ground, at a time when the moderate opposition had tremendous momentum uh, to really sort of recalibrate and push Assad back. Um, I'm struck by your comments, your consistent comments of uh, sort of lesser U.S. engagement. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, is, has it always been that way, or has it been because of the way the conflict has evolved and we've let it get to a place where you now feel that uh, greater U.S. engagement is, is not as useful? Senator, I've never been comfortable with having American combat forces in Syria. I, I've always thought this was first and foremost a Syrian fight. Uh, there are there's no perfect angel in this civil war, but there are some that are much worse than others. And I think the Americans, American policy should be aimed at helping those who accept that there needs to be a genuine political solution um, and a political process out of that solution that allows Syrians to choose their own form of government. Um, I don't think special operations forces, as good as they are, and they're fabulous, um, I don't think they can govern the spaces that are going to be liberated from the Islamic State. Um, and I don't think they should be choosing, don't think they should be choosing who governs those spaces either. I worry that uh, given the fragmentation among Sunni Arabs, uh, they'll just start killing each other. And if we don't insist on a process uh, by which they choose, I, I fear that it's going to go very bad again, just as Western Iraq did. So um, with respect to assistance, material assistance to the Armed Opposition Center, I think actually I've been pretty consistent over the years. Um, the Russian- I think, I think the most of the committee has been too, has as Congress, it just hasn't, uh, just hasn't happened. Uh, Senator Flake, yeah, appropriately happened. Thank you, and I apologize if some of this ground has been covered. Um, New York Times reported over the weekend that uh, Al-Qaeda's top leadership has uh, decided that its future lies in, in Syria and that it has dispatched uh, more than a dozen of its uh, seasoned, veterans, seasoned veterans there. Um, is this uh, your understanding? Is that, Ambassador Ford, is that happening? And if it is, how is that going to complicate the situation there? Uh, talk about the interplay between uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS. The Nusra Front, uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, has been gaining uh, ground for most of the last two years. Um, I've seen these reports about them um, declaring a caliphate or intending to. I don't think they've reached a final decision on that, Senator. If they do, it will complicate greatly their relations with other Syrian opposition groups on the ground and their 
relationship with other Syrian opposition groups on the ground. I'm not talking about the Islamic State. Uh, but in northwestern Syria, where there is no Islamic State, in northwestern Syria, um, it will greatly complicate their relations up there. Um, if but they declare it, a caliphate... Is there, is there, as the New York Times is claiming, um, a renewed emphasis um, on Syria by al-Qaeda? And, and uh, in, in, in injecting more of its forces there? Absolutely. Um, Zawahiri in um, Central Asia, wherever you are, South Asia, um, has been paying more attention to Syria. Um, he's sent envoys to try to um, line up the leadership of uh, the Nusra Front, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. So they're absolutely paying attention. I don't think they have a, a finalized decision on what strategy to pursue. And so they're paying more attention to it. They are sending more people, as you said. Um, but I think they're still in their own internal deliberative process. The key thing to watch for, Senator, is whether or not they declare a caliphate of their own. Mm -hmm. Ms. Lindbergh, do you have any thoughts on that? <clears throat> Simply, I would reiterate something I said in my uh, earlier comments, and th this um, underscores the importance of really paying attention to a generation of Syrian youth who have been dispossessed. They are without educational or job or future opportunities, and that leaves them much more vulnerable to uh, predatory employers, uh, trafficking, and violent ideologies. And so we have a generation of Syrians uh, who we should be relentlessly focusing on assisting um, who are currently uprooted. Ambassador Ford, if, if uh, no one there really believes that we will put ground forces, a significant number of ground forces there, what, what leverage uh, do we have in Syria? Is that, uh, and is it more leverage than we had uh, two years ago, or is it, uh, is it less? I think we have less leverage than we did two years ago, Senator. How is that? Uh, the Russians have combat forces in Syria that has increased their leverage. Uh, the Iranians now have their own combat forces in Syria that has increased their leverage. And I think, frankly, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and other countries in the region who have been fighting against Assad, I think um, look at this administration and perceive that it is not uh, consistent with respect to uh, what's happening in Syria and the American response, and therefore our credibility with those governments has diminished. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, um, last month the UN Special Envoy uh, Staffan de Mistura said that Syria, uh, the conflict there, has claimed nearly 400,000 deaths. Some estimates place that closer to a half a million. 4.5 million people have fled the country since the start of the conflict, most of them women and children. And 6.5 million people are internally displaced inside of Syria. That's 11 million people who have either fled or are internally displaced. And I, I, I think we have become desensitized to that reality. The degree of carnage and butchery uh, is unparalleled today and it is bled over into Europe and a trail of death uh, that traverses the Mediterranean and under dangerous routes where it threatens to destabilize an entire continent. So I listen and I have great respect for all of you. Uh, 
you've come before the committee many times, uh, and this is not an easy situation. But what I hear here is testimony that, in essence, amounts to recommendations for selective engagement uh, on a scale that, in my view, won't lead to meaningful changes uh, to stop the human catastrophe or relieve the human suffering that we, uh, in the Congress as well as this administration, has done little to stop. I think we had an opportunity to affect that uh, when several years ago this committee passed a, a bipartisan effort to arm and uh, vet the uh, moderate Syrian rebels at a time that it would have made a difference. Unfortunately, the administration was not ready to engage in that. And when it did, it was way too late and the conflict had already conflagrated in such a way that uh, there were no clear sides, so to speak. Uh, and I think uh, we, while we are trying to figure out what we do now, I think there are lessons to be learned here for the future. Uh, we had a hearing here recently about America's role in the world. Well, you know, uh, I appreciate and fully have supported uh, on Syrian refugees into the United States. I have supported the humanitarian assistance, but I want to stop the slaughter, not just simply feed those who survive the carnage. And in that respect, uh, I, I don't get uh, much of a sense uh, that we have a lot of options. I think we have lost the opportunity and emboldened and strengthened our enemies, whether those are Assad, Iran, Russia, uh, the Islamic State. And I think history is not going to look too kindly on, on us uh, in the years ahead. So with that as my own perspective on where we're at and how we got here, the question is, how do you, specifically, if you could give me an A, B, or C, affect the calculus and the leverage with Russia, who clearly has its interests. It's committed troops. It changed the paradigm. It gave Assad a new life at a time that Assad, look at, look at the differences of Assad in July versus afterwards. Very dramatic difference. Uh, and we are even in the midst of some negotiations that say we accept him for a period of time. God knows how long that's going to be. Uh, the Iranians, as you have all testified, they have their interests, and their interests largely don't coincide with ours, or for that fact, the Syrian people, most importantly. So how do we, and we seem to be hesitant to do anything to push back on them because we're worried that anything we do affects the nuclear uh, agreement. So at the end of the day, what are the potential, and the, and the Russians at the Security Council can veto anything. I agree with you that having consequences for not permitting you know, humanitarian assistance and other elements of a ceasefire, that there should be consequences for those who violate it. But you've got, if it's going to be at the Security Council, you've got a Russia who's not going to vote for that. So at the end of the day, where is the things, what are the things that we can do to leverage against or uh, with Russia and Iran, the two big players here, as, as well as other regional players? But where do we start there that we can change the dynamics? Because otherwise, we're just going to keep having these hearings and talk about the carnage, but we're not going to do anything to end it. I hope silence is not the just the person who's most equipped. You know. The one I, person who's most equipped, please answer. Well, I, I'm not the most equipped, but I, I would just say that I think, uh, you know, I and I, I think everybody share the utter sense of frustration, and th this is obviously one of those terribly complicated situations, especially right now, that doesn't yield to easy answers. 
I would say, however, that one of the challenges among the many that we've already talked about here today is the lack of unity and focus among the purported allies we have in the region. You've got Saudi Arabia, one of our strong allies, that is distracted by Yemen and is blocking negotiations with parts of the opposition. You've got Turkey that is distracted now by its fight with the Kurds. So a terrible situation has been further complicated by a splintering of interests among a complex set of actors who have different stakes in the, com in the conflict. So that leaves no easy answer forward, um, whether it's a combination of what Ambassador Ford has talked about and what's being addressed in Vienna with these talks, it doesn't appear as if there will be a fast, satisfactory conclusion to what is a soul-ripping set of, of humanitarian catastrophes going on. So there are no leverage points against the Russians, against the Iranians, is basically what I'm hearing. I, I'm not an Iran expert, Senator Mendez, Menendez, but I do think the Iranians are very sensitive about their domestic economy. I'm a little puzzled that there seem to be efforts by the administration to promote business with Iran in Europe um, when Iran is causing us problems in regions such as Syria. Um, and second, they are sensitive to casualties on the ground I do in Syria. And so if there is a way to increase that cost, I think that might be a way to get leverage. Um, we need to be clear about what Iran's interested in in Syria, Senator, and that is they want a government in Damascus that has good relations with Hezbollah and will give Hezbollah sustained strategic depth in its confrontation against Israel. That is the Iranian goal. And that goal is at great odds with American policy. So I, I, um, I'm going to need to step out, and I appreciate Senator Cardin uh, uh, bringing this to conclusion after Senator Udall. I, I just want to say I, I have sat here for an hour and a half and listened, and we thank you so much for your testimony and service. But in essence, what we've allowed to occur is uh, this is going to be settled in the manner that Russia and Iran uh, decide it's going to be settled. And that, that pendulum swung when Russia stepped into the vacuum that we allowed to exist for so long. Uh, we did not, along the way, do the things that we said we were going to do. I mean, all of us have visited the refugee camps and talked to the people there, telling them help was on the way, and this is what we're going to do to keep their sons and uncles and nephews from being slaughtered. And we never delivered, and uh, I, not with any frustration towards each of you, which are doing your best to, to rationalize what is happening and to help directly in many ways. Um, it's pretty unbelievable to me that... Uh, this has gone on as long as it's gone on, and we, we didn't even do the things that we said we would do and certainly missed huge opportunities along the way to keep 405,000 people from being slaughtered uh, and half the country from being displaced. So we thank you for your efforts. Um, I see no real solution that the United States is going to drive, Russia, Iran and the Syrian regime is going to drive whatever solution occurs, and we're going to be basically acquiescing to that. I think we all know that, and uh, I say that with tremendous frustration. So with that, uh, Senator Udall, thank you each for being here. If you don't mind, there will be some questions, um, and if you would answer them fairly promptly, uh, we'd appreciate it. With that, Senator Cardin, I know we'll adjourn. Thank you so much.
Thank you uh, very much, Chairman Corker and, and Senator Cardin. Really uh, appreciate you calling the hearing and very much appreciate your, all of your uh, service and, and hard work on many of these issues in the, the Middle East. Um, Director of National Intelligence Clapper was pretty frank about the situation in Syria and he said, I quote, the U.S. can't fix it, the fundamental issues they have, the large population bulge of disaffected young males, ungoverned spaces, economic uh, challenges, and the availability of weapons won't go away for a long time. Uh, so what can we do? Uh, many senators on this uh, committee staunchly opposed arming the so-called moderate uh, Syrians, and that program has been an abysmal failure, as you all know. Uh, we have to make some hard choices to end the killing in Syria and Iraq. Yet another occupation by U.S. forces is not the answer. I know, uh, Ambassador Ford, you, you uh, said you didn't think that was the case. I'm sure others feel that way. We already are slowly, incrementally uh, heading there in, this, in Iraq without congressional approval, which is something that I'm very worried about. A limited presence may be justified, but I have deep concerns. I firmly believe that the lack of an AUMF has weakened the Congress and set a dangerous precedent. That is not in our nation's long-term interest and it's not in line with the Constitution. Uh, so a question uh, to Dr. Kaufman, uh, which you wrote about this slippery slope. Uh, in just two years, the United States has moved from airstrikes to hundreds of military advisors in Iraq and 4,000 troops on the ground in both Iraq and Syria. And now the growth of ISIL in Libya and elsewhere is leading to more airstrikes in that country, all without congressional authorization. This is a generational struggle to contain ISIL and Al-Qaeda globally. Do you believe it's appropriate for Congress to place limits on our military footprint to prevent another full-scale war in the Middle East and without the approval of the American people? Uh, well, that is a very big question, Senator, and uh, I'm glad that I don't carry the burden that you carry in having to decide these issues up here. Let me do my best to give you an academic's perspective. Um, ISIS is a threat to the region. It's a threat to the United States. It's a threat to the world. And I think it appropriate uh, that we are working in coalition uh, to defeat them and to deal with that threat. And I, I think, you know, uh, DNI Clapper said we can't do this. We can't do it alone, that's for sure. And so uh, I think the key ingredient to success uh, is that we have a strong coalition. Now, we've talked a lot over the last hour and a half about the fractions within uh, America's coalition, um, whether it's competing priorities or concerns about the prospect of state failure in Syria or uh, other stakes like the issue of Kurdish uh, autonomy or independence. These are issues that if the United States doesn't want to go it alone and wants to be successful in coalition, it's going to have to address individually with some partners and collectively with others. Uh, it's not a small matter and I think the conclusion that I draw uh, not only from these last years of efforts to resolve the Syrian conflict, but more broadly looking across the arc of our policy in the Middle East over the, the last years, is the importance of uh, 
uh, alliance relationships, the importance of partnerships, and the importance of dialogue, because we're not always going to agree uh, on interests or on priorities, but we can never stop talking and go on our own ways because we end up creating more problems for ourselves and for our friends. Yeah. The, um, there was a lot of, lot of uh, um, attention given to the fact that the Russians uh, pulled back and, were, and they made public announcements and everything. What, what actually happened there? Did they, did, are they still just as engaged and just as involved in Syria as they were before? What's your sense in terms of the, from everything you can tell, uh, open sources and everything, the numbers of troops, the numbers of, of uh, fighting forces, weaponry, all of that, to, to any member of the panel here? Senator, they're still deeply involved militarily. They continue to conduct combat operations. Uh, they did withdraw some kinds of aircraft, uh, but they sent in ground attack helicopters instead. And so in a sense, they adjusted their force structure, adapted it to uh, conditions on the ground. Yeah. Any, any other uh, panelists have a thought on that? No. It, it, please, well, go ahead. Only Senator. that... Um, as we saw the, the um, Syrian regime with support from primarily the Russians but also the Iranians have continued to do relentless bombardment of civilian populations, especially in and around homes in Aleppo. And as Ambassador Forda said, that's with the reinforcements that they received over the last nine months. Yeah. They, and, and once again, let me echo what everybody said. We really... Uh, Appreciate all your your hard work, your focus on this, your thoughtfulness, and and uh, you can tell a lot of us are very frustrated, like I think you are. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Carter. And let me um, join the chairman in thanking uh, our panel. The magnitude of the crisis here d demands uh, U.S. leadership and attention, and uh, clearly the underlining solution is for the Syrians to have an opportunity to develop a, a country that they want and respect and have credibility. And that requires uh, the United States working with our coalition partners to make it clear that those who interfere with that, there, there are consequences. I agree, Ambassador Ford, I don't want U.S. troops in Syria uh, along with the, with, for the reasons that you just said. So, but there's got to be consequences to those who block humanitarian aid. There's got to be consequences to those who violate uh, a ceasefire. And the United States, working with our coalition partners, need uh, to be able to uh, provide that type of a framework so that we can move forward for a peace uh, among the Syrian communities and isolate the terrorists and work to eliminate the terrorists. And I think this hearing has been helpful in that regard, and I thank you all for your comments. As the chairman said, the record will remain open until Thursday. If questions are asked, we would ask that you try to respond to that quickly. And without objection, the uh, Human Rights First statement will be included in the committee record. And with that, the committee stands adjourned. Thank you all very much. <laughs>